You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Eric Dishman does healthcare research for Intel, studying technical and societal solutions for problems in care for the aging. He is also a kidney patient. He founded the product research and innovation team responsible for driving Intel's worldwide healthcare research, new product innovation, strategic planning, and health policy and standards activities. Dishman is also recognized globally for driving healthcare reform through home and community-based technologies and services with a focus on enabling independent living for seniors. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Business Week, and the Wall Street Journal named him one of 12 people who are changing your retirement. In part one, Mr. Dishman discusses patients and technology, including patient advocacy and how it intersects with technology, generational interaction with technology, and training family and community caregivers to use technology. Mr. Dishman, thank you for agreeing to participate in this discussion. Sure, no problem. Looking forward to it. So how did you first get interested in the nexus between healthcare and technology? I've lived it as a patient, as a family caregiver, as a uh, career. It's all sort of converged for me. It started when I was actually 16 and was a caregiver for a grandmother with Alzheimer's. And going through that experience was thinking there's got to be a better way. The, the impact on my entire family was so significant. And not a few years later, I ended up having kidney disease, ironically enough, given your audience and given your topic, and have dealt with that for many years as a patient and do a lot of patient advocacy for, for people with kidney disease. And at the same time, I've been working for tech companies all this time. So I see the need, I see the opportunities in the tech company, and now I'm just trying to match make the two. What are some of the pieces of advice that you give patients in terms of being advocates? Well, don't be patient, first of all. I mean, the challenge that I have with the patient advocacy is I really have to sort of teach patients to sort of unlearn a very passive approach to their own health care. I mean, too often, it's not true for all the patients, but even people that I find that are very proactive about other parts of their life, somehow when it comes to sort of health care, they wait until they're enormously sick and then travel long distances to a medical expert who puts Humpty Dumpty back together again and hopes that, you know, you repeat as necessary. And it's somehow we've lost a sense of personal ownership and a, and a sense of personal responsibility and a sense of personal control in the healthcare system. And so I have to teach patients to advocate for themselves. The words patient and advocacy, you know, and, and self-advocacy don't go well together naturally for them. And you have to teach people to be a bit more critical, to do research about what they're doing, to get multiple opinions, and that they can do so without being arrogant or a jerk. But, you know, at the end of the day, you are the pilot of your own body and your own health, and, and you better at least co-pilot that with your professional care team. How would you then apply technology to that? I mean, to some extent, you could argue that, that what you're raising, obviously the research piece would, could involve technology, but the, a lot of what you're talking about is, is someone becoming informed but then being their own advocate and really representing themselves in their interactions with caregivers or with physicians, with, with nurses, with other providers. I'm just wondering how technology could help facilitate that discussion. Well, the most radical pe- technology and act that I get patients to do is to carry paper and pen with them into an exam room and write down their questions ahead of time, their health goals ahead of time, so that they've thought about what they're trying to accomplish with their care team and then 
that they can remember what goes on in, in a doctor-patient interaction. When I was in grad school, I did some of my first research on studying mostly primary care interactions between patients and their doctors. And, you know, we would do these studies where you would come out of it and say, okay, we would we would be in the exam room and record and or record these, and you would see that over a period of, of a 15- or 20-minute exam in those days, you know, the physician would give 10 to 12 instructions. No patient was writing them down. And then we would do these memory tests right before and after and, and, you know, and a week later asking them what did their physician discuss with them. And people would remember two to three things, the, the last thing that the physician said and the most frightening thing that the physician said. But the other eight to ten items sort of were out of sight, out of mind. So, you know, the most radical technology in active paper, but more germane to the conversation that we're having. I mean, what, what we're using today with patients are in-home technologies that allow the home to become a major node of care for them and that, that give them tools to do virtual visits with their doctors, to collect their vital signs ongoingly and share that information and see what their own trend lines of their vital signs are as opposed to kind of the once a year or once every six months shot in the dark of your what your blood pressure was when you happened to come in for a clinical visit. Um, care coordination tools that allow you to sort of reach out to other people who are, have been or going through similar circumstances. Um, online tools that sort of help family caregivers who are given the rights and permissions to look at your data and sort of join in um, to engage with you. I mean, one of the things I do as a patient advocate now is I use some uh, some online software tools. I have 121 patients right now in a secure patient advocacy portal that I work with. And we have things like shared calendars and it sort of have a, has a, it's sort of like instant messaging presence. So if I go and log into my space right now and there's 10 other patients that are in there looking at documents or talking to one another, I'll know they're there. I can see that they're actually looking at my latest records. And these might be 10 other kidney patients who have experienced things like I have. And having their eyes on my records, I, I find really comforting. And, you know, they can help me interpret based on their own experience. But there's some very simple tools in there where it's a shared calendar. So if it's somebody that's going in for dialysis or if this is a kidney cancer patient and somebody on chemotherapy, we do very simple little things like post a virtual sticky note that says, hey, I'm looking for a ride to chemo this week or to dialysis. Can someone take me? So even that sort of simple community-forming digital tool is a really powerful enabler of, of helping you know people not have to go through the whole process alone but have other people to help them. And sometimes those are informal caregivers and volunteers, and sometimes those are trained professionals and clinicians. So just staying on this this story for a second, do you – is there a different sort of demographic behavior? In other words, is there one generation that, that sort of interacts differently with the technology than another, or is it pretty consistent across age groups? It's not as different as people often think. If you make clear – to every age group, the value proposition for what the technology is going to do. And, and so what I mean by that, so at, at Intel, uh, I'm a social scientist by training, and we have a team of social scientists and clinicians, and we've actually studied and lived with about a 1,000 elderly households over the last uh, 10 years in 20 different countries. So we've studied their entire care experience, and if mom falls and has a hip fracture, we go with her and study her whole experience in the hospital. If someone managing chronic kidney disease and dialysis, we go understand that. And if there is a key family member who's part of that care, we go go observe and study that person as well. 
if I look across the 20 countries that we've done this work, and then we've also studied the family caregivers who are sort of baby boomer aged, 40, 50, 60-something, often caring for 60, 70, 80, 90, and even 100-something in terms of terms of age, it is certainly true that what technologies the particular cohort or life stage are comfortable with is kind of what you've got to work with with them in terms of sort of managing their own health and wellness. So, for example, we don't find the cell phone coaching and, and applications for today's seniors, to, it's not as compelling for them as it is for today's 40- and 50-year-olds um, because they just haven't grown up and had cell phones be part of their life for a long time. So it's kind of like what technologies did that generational cohort grow up with and, and sort of become overlearned. But that being said, we have taught 90- to 100-year-old people with dementia how to use a PC or a PC-like device in the home for managing their own health, even with the early stages of memory loss, even if they've never used one before, as long as we did two things. We made clear what the value proposition was to them. Hey, by doing this, you're not going to have to go to the hospital as often, and your family can help care for you and, and interact with you every day. So what's the value proposition? And two, what, what's the training, right? And, and patiently train them on how to actually use these new technologies. How much do you, if possible, involve the family in terms of both the training but just in assisting with the care and with the communication methodologies? It, it, it's pretty key. I mean, for the actually, I guess this work that we've been doing at Intel now is sort of 12 years old. It's sort of, it's 12 years ago, and one of the fundamental tenets from the beginning of this work was that there's no scenario in which you're going to magically mint enough new physicians and nurses to sort of catch up with the age wave globally. So your only choice is to try to figure out how do you educate and empower patients themselves to be more part of their own care team, and how do you, when appropriate, skill shift and offload some of the things that the clinic, the, you know, the, the precious, scarce resource of clinical experts offload some of those daily care responsibilities to volunteers, community health workers, you know, family members. That's sort of a strategy in, in, in trying to do that skill shifting. And the families, by and large, are hungry for it. Uh, what we just traditionally haven't done is created tools and education and sort of cultural responsibility that enabled them to actually go do that. But by and large, we find, you know, the family, for us, it's the holy trinity. It's like the patient themselves, their informal care network, whether that's family or neighbors or friends, it's sometimes all of the above and, you know, it's different. But that informal care network and the professional care network, we're trying to develop IT tools, information and technology tools that facilitate that holy trinity to be able to work well in some seamless ways. And, and you can't just sort of throw the families in as an afterthought. You've really got to design a care system and then the infrastructure that supports it that really facilitates all three working with one another. It's interesting when I looked at the recent Department of Labor statistics and projections as to what the, the key jobs will be in the future, I think half of them involved health care. And one that sort of got my attention was home health in terms of not so much a provider, but an aide who was going to come in and check with people at home, help them with their day-to-day -day responsibilities. And you can imagine part of that for someone who lives alone could be the interface with some of this technology. Um, we have a lab in Ireland, and 
we have about 400, 500 seniors who are kind of part of this cohort study who help us co-invent and develop these, these independent living technologies that we've been working on, some of which are really medical and healthcare oriented and some of which are lifestyle enhancement oriented tools that allow them to teach a class to other seniors. And it's really about just keeping them socially engaged and with a sense of purpose. But we created a 1-800-HELPLINE for seniors in all of Ireland. It's now national in the whole country. Initially, it was just in this one community. And we staffed it with seniors who wanted to volunteer to sort of man the desk and come into the community health center to man the phones for whatever hours they signed up for. And it was incredibly powerful, but then one of the challenges was we didn't want all the senior volunteers to have to drive into the community health center. So we worked with some phone switching technology and some other capabilities. And over time, we've developed a system where as a senior volunteer manning the help desk, you can sit in your robe from the comfort of your own home. And for the six hours or three hours that you signed up to to man the phone that day, it rings in on your own home phone line. It's very seamless. And, And it's kind of a virtual call center. But what that's done is it's offloaded a lot of the calls that, quite frankly, the emergency medical services and the ambulance folks would get from frail seniors who were sort of, you know, calling 911, not because they had a broken hip or anything like that. They were not feeling well, and and they honestly just needed some social interaction. So we used IT and the sort of volunteerism that was pent up in these other, you know, seniors in Ireland to sort of match make to a need that offloaded the, you know, expensive care settings in the formal healthcare system, you know, by finding somebody to actually fill that gap in need. And I think that's that kind of thing is, is what we're going to have to do in health reform in every country that's looking at it right now. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.